All right. Well, good morning. How, how is everybody this morning? Awesome. Awesome, 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 awesome. Well, we finished Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, today we're going to be in Acts, Acts chapter 12, if you want to flip there in your scriptures. And the title of today's sermon is Miracle or Martyr, I Trust You. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and Father, we thank you for your love for us. Father, we thank you that you are in control of this world, that you have all things in your hands, that nothing surprises you, that you know the future, and that you still interact, you still step in, you still perform miracles, you still intervene in our lives. But Father, right now as we study your word, Father, I pray that you will open our hearts and open our minds to understand it clearly, to embrace it, to accept it. Father, that we would not only understand it, but that we would also live it. And so, Father, we need your help to do that. We need your Holy Spirit to give us understanding and to give us the boldness and courage and love to live it out. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well... 2020 has been a rough year. Uh, One of the best words, I think, to describe 2020 is probably the word uncertain. Um, Since about February, every day has had an air of uncertainty about it. Um, For about 10 months now, it seems like we've been living every day not sure what's going to happen next. We've all had our predictions. We've all thought we knew, and I've got a feeling we've all been wrong. Um, But I believe that if you were to think about how we felt for the past 10 months, we're only starting to catch a glimpse of what it was like to live as a first century Christian. And when I say a glimpse, I mean a glimpse. We don't know what tomorrow holds We don't know what next week holds or next month or next year. You're going to be mad at me for saying this, but 2021 could be worse than 2020. We just don't know. We don't know. Um, If nothing else, this should really help us to see more clearly what it was like to be followers of Christ in the first century. You take our uncertainty and you multiply it by about 100, and that's probably what it would have been like to be Peter or James or John or Paul. But when we read about these men in the Scriptures, at least after they've received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, let's just take that time frame, um, they don't seem to be living in fear. They don't seem to be walking around aimlessly because they don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. And so that's what I want to focus on today. How is it that they were living in far more uncertain days than we are today, yet they seem to be more confident than most of us today? They were living in uncertain days, but they weren't living wavering lives. They spoke and acted confidently everywhere they went as if they knew what the future held, even though there was no way for them to know what tomorrow would bring. So let's read what it was like in the days of King Herod and the early church. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. 
and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. So, so far, so far, what we've seen is James was killed, and Peter, after Herod saw that that pleased the Jews to kill James, the apostle James, then Peter was thrown in prison to do the same thing. And he was given four squads of four soldiers each to guard him. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. He was bound with two chains, sleeping between two soldiers. Do you, do you get the feeling that Herod wanted to make sure that Peter didn't go anywhere? Maybe because he'd heard of things in the past and knew what these people that kept uh, slipping away. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell, striking Peter on the side. He woke him up and said, quick, get up, and the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. <clears throat> they went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and the servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Here we have the story of two of Jesus' twelve apostles, James and Peter. Now one became a martyr and the other was rescued by a miracle. Why? The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to tell both of their stories together. And I don't believe that was for an accident. So the question is, did Peter have more faith than James? I don't think so. Did more people pray for Peter than for James? Let's look at it again. 
Verses 1 through 5, about that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Peter, James, and John. You know what's unique about those three apostles? They were Jesus' inner circle. They were the ones closest to Jesus. They were the ones that got to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They were the ones that he brought closest to him when he went to pray in the garden. Peter, James, and John were the three that Jesus allowed to spend more time with him and experience more miracles with him. And we're talking about that same Peter and James. Now, did Jesus choose to save Peter miraculously, but choose not to save James because he didn't like him as much? Of course not. Did Peter have more faith than James? No. This isn't about faith. His miracle isn't about faith. Peter denied Jesus three times the night he was betrayed. If Jesus was upset with either of them, then it should have been Peter that would have been killed and James rescued, wouldn't it have been? I mean, that's how the story would have played out in Scripture if that were the case, that Jesus said, well, I'm going to save you, I'm not going to save you. He would have had a, a grudge against Peter, wouldn't he? wouldn't he have? But that's not how it worked. Matter of fact, Peter, if it would have been reversed, Peter would have said, okay. You know what? I deserve this. I deserve to die at the hands of the Romans just like Jesus did when I denied him and didn't go with him. Or do you think that Peter was saved and James wasn't because the church was fervently praying for Peter's release and for whatever reason they weren't praying for James's release? I don't believe that for a second. They were both apostles. They were both the apostles of the church, the leaders of the church. They both lived under the same king, Herod. They both lived in the same area. It would have been the same people in the same church that would have been praying for both of their leaders, for Peter and for James. You're not going to convince me that they prayed for Peter, but they didn't pray for James. I don't believe that for a second. And surely... They prayed for themselves. So if the prayers of an apostle, if James' prayer for himself as an apostle was not affected, effective, then why would the church's prayers be effective? The church members' prayers be effective if the apostles' prayers weren't effective? I just don't believe it. But I'll say this. You will hear preachers say on TBN that if you pray with great faith and do not doubt, that God will answer your prayers. That if you can muster up enough faith, and what they mean by faith when they say that is they mean confidence. That's what they mean, confidence. That if you can muster up enough confidence that you will receive whatever you ask for, if you can do it without any doubting, that God will give you whatever you ask for. But I hate to break it to you. Those are not the types of prayers that the church was praying when God performed this miracle. The church that was praying for Peter, fervently for Peter, they were not praying 
prayers of total confidence without doubting for Peter's release. Those were not prayers of unyielding faith with no doubt and total confidence. That's not the prayers they were praying, but yet God performed the miracle and rescued him. How do I know that's not the prayers that they were praying? Well, let's look at what happened. It says, Peter knocked at the door of the outer gate. Now, this is Mary, the mother of John Mark, the the one who wrote the gospel of Mark, his mother Mary, they're at her house. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. Of course he's at the outer gate. We've been praying with total confidence and not doubting at all. God has to answer our prayers, they told her. Is that what it says? This is not what the scripture says. That's not how it played out. That's why I didn't put a verse number or nothing down there. This is what they said. They said, you are out of your mind, they told her. Okay. So you can't say that they were all in the house fervently praying for the release of Peter with total confidence and no doubting. And then Rhoda comes and said, Peter's at the door. He's knocking at the gate. They would not have said, you're out of your mind. Then she kept insisting that it was true. So when they finally came around to believing, okay, there is somebody at the gate. They said, well, it's not Peter. It's his angel. Because we know Peter's not at the gate. He's in prison. Those are not confident prayers without doubting of Peter's release. That's not the type of prayers that the church was praying. Then it says, Peter, however, kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him for themselves, they didn't say, told you so. They were amazed. They were amazed. Why were they amazed? Because they didn't actually believe that Peter could miraculously escape prison surrounded by four squads of four soldiers each. They did not believe he could. They didn't believe it. And isn't that what most of us do as well? We hear about our earthly circumstances, whatever they may be, And the more the world tells us that something can't or won't happen, the more we believe it, don't we? The more the church in Mary's house heard, not only did they arrest Peter, Herod assigned four squads of four soldiers each. They bound him with two chains and they're sleeping on each side of him bound to him. You know how you you bind yourself to the person watching you? He's bound to two soldiers, one on each side, bound with two chains, and he has four squads assigned to him. And the more that that news kept coming to the people at the house, the more they were convinced, well, he's not getting out of this one. Maybe God will spare him on his day of trial. Maybe when he's he's standing before Herod, maybe God will, will somehow cause him to not be convicted and maybe he won't be executed. Let's pray for that. Because we're obviously not going to pray for him to be released to us in the middle of the night because we know that won't happen. That's just not going to happen. So then when Rhoda comes up and starts saying, Peter's at the gate, they said, you're out of your mind. I don't believe you for a second. You're crazy. 
And then we realize, okay, well, she really was talking to somebody. We say, well, we know it's not Peter. It must be his angel coming to tell us something. And then when they finally did see him, they were amazed. That doesn't sound anything like the types of prayers that you hear people telling you on TV that you have to pray if you want to see a miracle from God in your life. That's nothing like what we're being told. These are the prayers you have to pray if you want to see a miracle from God in your life. They saw a miracle. Those were not the prayers they were praying. Now, does the Bible tell us to pray without doubting? Yes. Does it say that if we doubt that we should not expect to receive anything from God? Yes, it does. But you know what's really important? Context. Context. It tells us that in James chapter 1, but context is important. Let's look at it. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, say this. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. What is James talking about in context praying for? What did he say? Do you remember? Praying for wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is not intelligence. Wisdom is knowing right from wrong. So, if any of you, James is saying, if any of you in the church lacks wisdom, if any of you can't distinguish between right and wrong, if any of you are not sure what God wants you to do or not want you to do because you can't figure out right from wrong, you're just not sure what's sin, what's not sin, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously and ungrudgingly. God wants you to know right from wrong. He wants you to know sin from holiness. He wants you to be able to make decisions in life and live a holy life for him and not sin. He wants to give you this wisdom and that you should ask. But, he says, you should ask in faith, not doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. So, to say that a person who doubts God's existence should not expect to receive wisdom from God, that's in essence what James is saying. If you doubt God's existence, then you should not expect to receive wisdom from God. To say that is a far stretch from saying that if you can pray all your prayers in complete confidence, then God will give you anything you ask for. That's a huge stretch, a leap I can't make. It does not say, let him ask in confidence without doubting. It doesn't say that. Matter of fact, let me give you some some stats here. The word confident or confidence appears 25 times in the New Testament. All 25 times, it is never translated from the Greek word pistis. Pistis is the word for faith or belief. So every time you read the word confident or confidence in the New Testament, it never came from the Greek word pistis used here. Every time you read the Greek word pistis in the New Testament, which is 243 times, the word for faith is the Greek word pistis. That word appears 243 times in the New Testament. All 243 times, it is never translated as confidence or confident. Faith, 
does not mean confidence. But yet people will preach to you today, day in and day out, that to pray in faith means to pray in confidence. It means to have faith, have great faith means to have great confidence. But that's not what the word means. It's not confidence, because then you have to ask yourself, confidence in what? If it is confidence, if that is what it means, confidence in what? And what is the TV preacher going to tell you? Confidence that you will receive what you asked for. Right? That's what it always means. That if I'm going to pray for a Lamborghini, that I have to pray in confidence. Confidence in what? Confidence that I'm going to get the Lamborghini. So it's, it takes the word faith and changes it to mean something it doesn't mean. And then it takes the word confidence and applies it to something that faith was not applied to. To say that he should ask in faith without doubting doesn't mean he should ask in confidence, confidence in what he asked for. Because faith is faith in a person, not in a thing, not in a request. See, it's not confidence in myself. It's not confidence in what I asked for. It's faith in a person. The person is God. So I'm not having faith that I'll, I'm not having faith in faith of what I asked for. It's faith in God. If I doubt God and his existence, I shouldn't expect to receive what I asked for. But my faith is placed in him, not in what I asked for. There's a huge difference. So when I trust to, to, to have faith in a person means that I trust that person. I trust God. I trust who he is. I trust that he knows everything, past, present, and future. And I trust that he can do anything, past, present, and future. And I trust that he loves me and cares for me and will take care of me, past, present, and future. Therefore, I trust he hears my prayers and he will answer my prayers when and how he determines best, not how I determine best. Because see, I have faith in him, not confidence that what I ask for is best. My faith is in him, and therefore my prayers are spoken in faith in him without doubting him. See, the faith and the doubting has to be on him, not on what I said. Does that make sense? But that's the context of James. Every time you take a passage of Scripture and you want to say, I'm going to build my theology on this passage, you have to look at it in its own context. Because what James is saying here about faith and doubting may be completely different than what Jesus said about faith and doubting and prayer in Mark. Because context changes. So you can't just say, okay, that's what it means here, so of course that's what it means everywhere else. That's not how it works. But here we see that my confidence, if it were confidence in my prayer then my confidence would be in my own ability to pray confident prayers because it means that I believe that I would ask for the best things in the best ways at the best times that would work out best for God's ultimate plan in history I don't have that kind of confidence I don't believe that every prayer I pray is always the best thing that should happen when I ask for something do I want it to happen of course I want it to happen otherwise I wouldn't have taken the time to ask God for it but I know and am confident that me asking for something may not be the best thing for the future. 
Because I don't know the future. And I don't know the ramifications of receiving what I ask for. I don't know how it's going to affect somebody else who will affect somebody else who might affect somebody else. I mean, this may be a crazy example, but let's just take somebody in history that we know. Let's take Adolf Hitler. We know he was a bad man. Can we agree to that? He, he annihilated and brutally murdered and starved and killed, and we won't even get into all the horrible, atrocious things he did, to over 6 million Jewish people. And not just them. They're not the only ones he killed. He was a horrible person. Now, God allowed him to live on this earth, but let's say that God didn't. Let's say God took the time clock back and didn't allow him to live, okay? Oh, no, let's not use him because that's past. Let's use another example. Let's say that me, that I come down with a serious illness, and I don't want to die yet. I'm not ready to go. I got a lot of things I want to do here yet, and I'll get to that in a minute. But let's say I come down with a serious illness and I pray to be healed from that illness. Well, God knows what would happen in the future if I am healed and God knows what will happen in the future if I'm not healed. What if my dying furthers his kingdom better than my living? See, I don't know. I'm confident God knows. I'm confident he knows. But I'm not confident that my prayers are always best because I don't know the future. I don't know the ramifications of getting what I ask for. And we can all, if we're honest, we can all look back at our lives and probably think of some prayer that we've prayed that we're so glad we did not get. I don't know about y'all, but I can. That I'm glad God did not always give me what I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted it when I prayed. Because imagine what would happen. I mean, just imagine it. Imagine if you could get anything you ask for, whenever you ask for it, however you ask for it. You'd pray a prayer and you'd get it and you'd be like, wow, that was great. I'm going to try that again. You'd pray another prayer in confidence and you get it. And you're like, man, this is awesome. And it probably wouldn't take you or me more than six hours to fill our lives up with a bunch of junk we should not have. I'd ask for money, I'd ask for wealth, I'd I'd ask for all kinds of stuff. I promise you, it would not be a good thing if we always got what we asked for, when we asked for it, how we asked for it, because we would become selfish, we would become prideful, we would become self-centered, and the world would immediately start to revolve around me. Me, me, me. God does not promise to answer those prayers. So I don't care how much somebody tells you, if you can just build up enough confidence that you're going to get what you ask for, that is not what Jesus teaches in the scriptures. But let's look. Let's look real quickly at something that Jesus did say because people will use Jesus' words and they will say that's exactly what it means. If we look at Mark chapter 11, verses 22 to 24, and Jesus answered them, have faith in what? God. He did not say, have confidence in your ability to pray good prayers. He said, have faith in a person, in God. But then he went on to say, truly I say to you, 
Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. This is probably one of the most abused verses to preach exactly what I've been telling you this whole time is not true. To say that if you can just have enough confidence that what you ask for, that you have received it already. That's that name it and claim it. That I've already received it. I have received it. It is mine. I have, I have accepted it. I am healthy. I am wealthy. Whatever it is, I have, past tense, I have received what I have asked for. And it's really easy to take that verse and abuse it that way. But you know it's not easy? To have to answer to the people that you teach that that's what that means. So every pastor that stands up and teaches that's exactly what that means, all you have to do is ask them to show it. Show it in their own life. How many mountains have they told to move that actually got up and moved? If they could just tell people they are healed and that's it, you are healed, I, have de- I am confident, I am completely confident you are healed. Why have they not gone into the local hospital and let every single person out of their rooms? They haven't acted on what they preach. They don't live what they preach. They claim it in such a way that if it doesn't come through, it's your fault, not theirs. They never have to actually give an account for what they say from the pulpit. They don't have to live out what they preach. They just have to convince you that it's true. And if, you, if it doesn't come true for you, it's because you didn't have enough faith. They take advantage of people. They crush people. They build people up to think, this is how it's supposed to be, and it's not, and now I'm disappointed, and now I'm either disappointed in God or I'm disappointed in myself. So what does it mean? If he says to not doubt and that you can pray for anything and that it'll come to pass, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. How could that mean anything else, right? Well, here's the thing. These words came from Jesus, did they not? Jesus spoke these. This book right here, I can just as truly say these all came from Jesus. Every word in this book came from Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. These words are inspired by God himself. So to say that one thing Jesus said To say that it's true, and for it to be true that something else Jesus said is false, the problem lies in your understanding, not in what Jesus said. So, if Jesus said this in Mark 11, 22, that whatever you ask for, believe that you've received it and it will be yours, that doesn't nullify everything else Jesus said. It doesn't nullify when Jesus said, don't pray for selfish things. Don't pray for things that that the wealth and the things of this world. Don't chase after those things. Don't ask God for those things because he's not going to give you those things. You can't then say, well, he said, whatever I ask in prayer, believe that I've received it and it'll be mine. That means I can ignore everything else he said and I can go out tomorrow with full confidence and pray for a Lamborghini. Why? Because it's okay to ignore everything else in the Bible if I hold on to this that tells me what I want to hear. The problem is not with what Jesus said. The problem is with ignoring everything else Jesus said. That's the problem. 
And everything else Jesus didn't just say in the Gospels, but anything inspired by the Holy Spirit of God in the Scriptures. If we look at James uh, chapter 4, verse 3, he says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So here we see God give us clear teaching. You've prayed and didn't get what you asked for because you prayed with wrong motives to spend it on your own pleasures. In other words, people prayed for material wealth selfishly for themselves to spend on things they should not spend it on, and God said, no. God said, no. And it doesn't matter how much confidence they prayed in. It doesn't matter how sure they were going to get what they asked for. God said, no. Because I'm your father, you're my child, and I'm not going to give you something bad for you. I know how it will destroy you. If I were to just give you that wealth and give you everything else you asked for and you just kept on this circle of spending on yourself and send yourself down this rabbit hole, I would be enabling you to destroy yourself and those around you. But I'm a loving father and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to enable you. I'm only going to give you the good things that I want to give you, that you ask for. And if you ask for bad things, I'm not going to give them to you. An example I read by John Piper. He said, if my little boy is in the kitchen and he sees a shiny, sparkly butcher knife and he says, ooh, I want to play with that, John Piper said, not going to give it to him. It doesn't matter that he wants it and that he thinks it's going to be fun to play with because it looks so nice. It doesn't matter what he thinks Because as his loving father, I know that's going to kill him. That's going to hurt him. So I'm going to tell him no to that request, but I'm going to give him some toys to play with that are safe to play with instead. And that's how God looks at us. We pray for things that we don't understand will be devastating to us, will will, will kill us, will harm us, will devastate those around us, that will destroy us, that will lead us to, if nothing else, fruitless lives so we're not actually moving the kingdom forward. And he says, no. And I don't care how much confidence you have when you pray. I don't care how confident you are when you say, I have received this already and it's already in my bank account. I just haven't went and checked and looked for it yet, but I know it's there. It does not matter the confidence you have in your own prayers. What matters is the faith you have in the one who answers them. And that's such a huge difference. And one can get you a lot of followers online and get a lot of people to send you money. And the other won't. But guess what? One's going to leave you disappointed in life because you're going to do it over and over and over and over and over and you're not going to get the results you were promised. And the other one, you're going to learn to trust the one who answers your prayers and trust that if it's the best thing, he will give it to me because I know him and I know he can act in this world and I know he loves me and I know he wants to do what's best for me and therefore I can be free to give my prayers to him knowing that he will do what's right. So let's look at one more passage, 1 John five fourteen and 15. And this is the confidence. You see that word confidence? That is the word confidence. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever, there's that word Jesus used, whatever you ask, it will be given to you. John uses the same word, whatever. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now you see how John uses the same language Jesus used? John said, we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, and whatever we ask, we have the request that we have asked of him. That's the same language Jesus uses, but John's very clear. Whatever we ask does not mean anything you want. Because right before that, he said, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. How can you pray confident prayers? This is how you can pray confident prayers. That if we ask anything according to his will, that's how you can pray confident prayers. That anything I ask God according to his will, I can be confident that he will give. He will answer my prayers. Because if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So the trick, the, the, not a trick, the key to understanding how to pray confident prayers is not in praying not having confidence that I will get anything I ask for. That's not where the confidence lies. It's confidence in God and knowing that anything I ask according to his will, I will get. And anything I ask not according to his will, I will not get. I won't. And so then our struggle becomes, how do we know what's in God's will and what's not in God's will? And I'm going to tell you, for most of the things that we regularly and habitually pray for, you can't know if it's in God's will. Because most of the things we pray for is the person I love, I want them miraculously healed. You cannot know if that's within God's will. Just as the church could not know if James was going to be martyred or Peter was going to be rescued. They didn't know. You can't know. You cannot know if you're going to be saved today or if you're going to die a martyr's death today. You cannot know. So you cannot pray that in total confidence that you will get what you prayed for. But you can pray for things he has promised that you know is according to his will. That he will answer the sinner's prayer. That he will convict those and draw all men to himself. You can pray for your lost loved one or relative or friend. You can pray, Father, I want you today through the Holy Spirit to convict so-and-so and draw them to you and don't let up on them today. You cannot confidently know how they will respond because they have free will. But you can pray in confidence that the Holy Spirit will tug on their heart all day long. You can pray that in confidence and know that you have gotten what you've asked for. Because God said it is his desire that he, he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know his will in certain things, and you can pray those in confidence. And other things you don't know, and you can't pray those in confidence. But our, our prayers of faith are not prayers of confidence in ourselves. Our prayers of faith is in the faith of the person who is, hears our prayers and will answer our prayers according to his will. And there, therefore, I can live and pray in confidence. And let me tell you something, there's freedom in that. There is a lot of freedom in knowing that I will not get everything I ask for. Because if you just take a second to think what that would look like, that's a responsibility I don't want. 
What if I could get anything I asked for, how I asked for it, when I asked for it? What if I could? What would every one of you do? You'd be coming to me, telling me what you want me to pray for. So would everybody else in the world. And I would have this burden of responsibility knowing that everything I pray for will happen. And I don't know the future effects of that. Can you imagine the weight of that? Can you imagine the burden of knowing everything I say and ask for will happen? And if I get it wrong, it's going to have devastating consequences. That is a burden no one should carry but God alone. And so there's freedom. I know it sounds crazy because you'll never hear this on TV, but I'm just telling you. There is freedom in knowing that I will not get what I ask for every time. There's freedom in knowing that. Because the responsibility of these things happening is not on me anymore. It's on the one who does know the future. It's on the one who does know everything. It's on him. And so I can pray freely. I can pray for things that may be a good thing. I can pray for things that may not be a good thing. But I can pray freely knowing that he'll make the right decision even if I don't know if it's the right decision or not. There's freedom in that. There's, it takes a weight off of us that I don't have to know if, how this is going to affect the future. All I know is I can pray to my Father genuinely for this thing and if it's according to his will, I know that he will do it. And if it requires a miracle... If I ask for someone's healing in the hospital that's going to need a miracle, I can have freedom knowing that if it's God's will to heal them, I can have confidence He will perform a miracle. And there's freedom in that. Because the truth is that James, how we said, you know how James said you you ask and didn't receive because you asked with wrong motives to spend it on your own passions? Do you know what James said right before that? Remember? He said, you don't ask because you don't, I mean, you don't receive because you don't ask. So just in the same way that he said, sometimes God says no because you ask for the wrong reason. James also said, sometimes God doesn't give you what he wants to because you never took the time to pray. So there may be someone that's sick and ill that God might not heal because we don't take the time to ask for God to miraculously heal them. That could happen. But there's freedom in knowing that I can come to God in prayer and ask him to heal someone and he will make the right decision. He will. And guess what? We don't always get the rescue. We don't always get the rescue Peter got. James didn't get it. James did not get the rescue. James died a martyr's death. But James and Peter both were ready and willing to die the martyr's death. And that is what is called and asked of every single person that chooses to follow Christ. Every single one of us. When we are called to follow Christ, He is calling us to lay down our lives and to carry our cross and to be willing to die the martyr's death for Him. It does not mean we all will die the martyr's death for him. It just means we have to be willing. Peter was willing. James was willing. James became the martyr. Peter became the miracle. That day. Now he died later. Peter was crucified later. He became a martyr later. 
But the point is, we don't know what our lives hold. We just have to be ready. Martyr or miracle, I trust you, God, with my life. That is the prayer every Christian has to be ready and willing to pray. Martyr or miracle, use me. If me becoming a martyr, if me dying a death, when I don't want to die, how I don't want to die, if that means your kingdom will move forward, martyr it is. If you want to perform a miracle in my life and heal me or move me or save people through me or whatever it is, because that's going to move your kingdom forward right now, miracle it is. But we've got to come to a place where we are all willing to say, martyr or miracle, I trust you. And then we can have freedom in our prayers because we have confidence, not in our ability to pray, but confidence in him to answer us when it's according to his will and to not answer us when it's not. And I trust him. And we're not going to get all our answers in this life. We're going to pray prayers that we're not going to get and we're not going to know in this life why we didn't get them. But I got a sneaky suspicion that when we leave this place and we are face to face with God and we get to view all of eternity from past to future, I got a feeling all our questions will be answered. And we'll know what he knows. And we'll know he made the right decision. So I'm going to ask you, Are you ready to confidently say, martyr or miracle, I trust you? Have you made that decision? Have you decided to trust Jesus Christ with your soul, with your future, with your life? Have you made a decision that I am going to turn from sin to follow him? That I'm going to turn from sin and follow Christ and I trust him with my life, and I trust that he knows best, and I trust that he will answer my prayers however he sees fit, and I trust him, and there is freedom in knowing that. Are you saved? Do you know you're going to spend eternity with God forever? Because that's the most important question you've got to get figured out. Have I placed my faith in him, not in myself? Too many people try to be a good person to get to heaven. That's placing faith in yourself. But you can't be good enough to get to heaven. You have to trust him to save you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And Father, we understand that you have a lot to say in your scripture. And that one part of scripture doesn't nullify another part of scripture. That every verse is true. And our understanding is only complete when our understanding incorporates all of your teachings and they all come up true. And Father, there is freedom in knowing that we will not get everything we pray for because we see what a devastating effect that would have on our life. We would pray for things we should not pray for. And we are thankful that you are a good father who looks at his children and says, No, If I give you this, it will hurt you and those around you. And therefore, I'm not going to give it to you. 
But Father, there are many times in this life when we pray sincerely to you and we truly believe that this cannot in any way perform any good in the future. And we don't understand why you do not answer our prayers. But Father, at that point, we're just going to have to step out in faith and trust that you know best. And Father, regardless of what happens, if we die for our faith, if we become martyrs, Regardless of what you have in store for our lives, martyr or miracle, we will trust you. We just ask that you use us and use our lives to further your kingdom. Because when we enter your kingdom, that's the only thing we're going to care about. We're not going to care about wealth. We're not going to care about prestige. We're not going to care about fame. We're not going to care about anything except people. The only thing we're going to care about is how many people gave their life to you. How many people were saved. How many people will spend eternity with us in the kingdom. So Father, help that be our focus for the rest of our lives here on this earth. Not the things of this world, but the people in this world. People that you created, designed and fashioned and placed here on this earth. Help us to make our lives focused on them to do good for others, and to point them to you. We love you, Father, and we do look forward to seeing what you will do in our lives. And we are thankful that you love us so much that you only do what's best for us. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand and join us for our last song.